The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Why did God make the universe? Scripture reveals the answer for the display of his glory. Why did God create man in his own image, in his own likeness, male and female, for his own glory, for the display of his glory? And why did God permit man to fall into sin, ultimately for the display of his glory? Why did God then work an unfolding story of redemption through the Jewish nation in the Old Covenant and then through the church for the last 20 centuries for the display of His glory. Ultimately, why did God send His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life and to die an atoning death on the cross? And why did God raise Him from the dead on the third day and ascend Him to heaven and seat Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms? And why did He pour out His Holy Spirit on the church for the ultimate display of His glory? Now, people don't always know what that means. It's not easy to understand what it means, the glory of God. But I think there's a light aspect to it and a display aspect to it and an attributes aspect that God, it's the radiant display of God's attributes or perfections, what kind of God he is, put on radiant display that we might see what a great and magnificent God he is. As we come to Revelation 21, which you just heard the text read for us by Dave, uh, we come to the final eternal display of the glory of God in the perfection of the church, in the perfection of the people of God. A number of years ago, my son Calvin and I, we were in Prague and we went to St. Vitus's Cathedral. And I've been to a number of cathedrals in Europe, but whenever you go into one of these medieval cathedrals, that one was begun in the year 1344, took over six centuries to finish. But one of the things that, that, that captivates you the most in those medieval cathedrals are the stained glass windows, these radiant uh, multicolored displays, and they're designed by the architects back in the Middle Ages to be situated to take the morning sunlight in through one set of windows, and then the, the late evening sunlight comes in through another set of windows. But as you're standing there, you're looking at vignettes, you're looking at pictures of individuals throughout history, and they're seeking to, to teach a lesson. And these little colored bits of glass work together in, in an amazing artistic display and the light coming through it, the, the cooperation between the light, the sunlight, and the colored pieces of glass gives an incredible picture that uh, th that stone structure would be a, a cold mausoleum if it weren't for that, the light streaming in from the outside. And the artistry of it gives a picture of the glory of God in the people of God throughout various eras of, of church history. This is what the artists sought to do. And as I was doing some research on the history of cathedrals, the history of stained glass windows in particular, there was a monk in France who was meditating on the very text of Scripture that's in front of us over the next number of weeks, Revelation 21, and he thought that colored pieces of glass and windows and natural light would be a way to show it. The whole thing started as a display, a foretaste 
of the new Jerusalem and the multicolored glory that we'll see when we get there. Now, the thesis of my sermon this morning, I am not going to be walking line by line through Revelation 21, 9 through 21. God willing, I'm going to do that in two weeks. Next week is Easter Sunday. I'm going to be preaching a, a resurrection message. The following week, God willing, I'll walk line by line through Revelation 21. This morning's sermon is more of a kind of a part two of last week's sermon based on the concept of heavenly memories. Last week, we kind of paid the price to some degree for the positivity of this morning's sermon on heavenly memories. The idea that there will be perfect memory in heaven might be a bit off-putting for some of us who don't want to think about our sufferings and don't want to think about our sins and all of that. We covered all that last week. But I believe that uh, our memory will be perfect of our, heaven, of our earthly life in heaven. But my thesis of this morning's sermon is that God will be in heaven putting on display in, in amazing detail His glory in putting the bride of Christ together. The most glorious thing that God has ever done in, in, in history is the bride of Christ, the church. It's far greater than the natural glory of creation. It's the most glorious thing that God's ever done is putting the people of God together. And so this morning what I want to push forward to you and to argue for is that a great part of our heavenly celebration will be going back over history but with the full understanding of the heavenly perspective of what God did by His sovereign power and in His sovereign grace and His wisdom to put together the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, how will he do that? I don't really know. I want to speculate with you what that will be like. So some of my sermon is going to be based on rock-solid scripture and exegesis, and some will be, I don't know, so much of a flight of imagination, but I'm not going to go too far from the text to say that it's, more, it's going to be better than just we all get big history books and we're going to open them up on our laps and start reading chapter 1, page 1. It's going to be better than that. But I can't go so far as to say absolutely it's going to be done in this way or that way. I think it's possible that we might be able to travel in visions of the Spirit back in time as John did in this text forward in time. Now, what do I mean by visionary spirit travel? What do I mean by that? Well, in Ezekiel 40, for example... Uh, the prophet Ezekiel was in exile in, in, in Babylon. And in, in Ezekiel 40, it says, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. That's Ezekiel 40. Well, you see the exact same thing in this text. Look again at what you just heard, verses 9 through 11, Revelation 21, 9 through 11. There the apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos, a small rocky island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he didn't leave the island, but his mind was filled with light was filled with vision through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 9 through 11. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me 
the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look at verse 11. It's shown with the glory of God. That's, that's my basic concept. The new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, will be radiating with the, with the glory of God in Christ. It's shown with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So we can well imagine our God being an eternal God for whom past, present, and future are equally vividly before his mind. He is not locked in to any moment in time, but he's able to tell what happened a thousand years ago as easily as he's able to tell what's going to happen in a thousand years because he is an eternal God. That he would be able to fill the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem with a spirit, a visionary spirit, to be able to go back in time and see what happened. What God did to put the church together, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I have personally never used virtual reality goggles. And I don't know that I ever will. I think whoever's got them on and is wearing them is having a great time. But people who are looking at the person think, what an idiot. As they're kind of doing this thing. I don't know why I mention all that. But anyway, it's not that. But instead, a vision through the Spirit of what God did to save him or her or this group, etc. Filling our minds and hearts. We will be able to study the vast, complex, intricate plans of God in leading all the elect to Christ. The price that was paid in his blood and then the blood of martyrs to apply that message of his blood to them, we'll be able to see it unfold. And we will be thrilled. I think there are two subjects that many of us don't really enjoy here on earth. Some of us do, but many don't, that we're going to really enjoy in the new heaven, new earth. One is going to be science, and the other is going to be history. Science, an exploring of what God has made in the new heaven, new earth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's like a, a natural science. In that new world, we will see what God has done in making the new heaven, new earth. That's a whole other sermon another day. I'm not probably going to do that one. But this is history. And we're going to immerse. Now, I want to root what I just said in 12 passages of Scripture. I'm going to go through them quickly. I probably have others than these. But these are ones that I think God gave me to say to show me why I think what I said is biblically true. That a large part of God's glory in heaven will be going back over what he did throughout redemptive history to assemble the church of Christ. So let's start with the text we just looked at, Revelation 21, 9 through 21. As I said, two weeks from now, I'll be walking line by line through these verses. But this is what I believe. The new Jerusalem will be a radiantly glorious city made up of the people of God redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation on earth and spread out over every era of church history. That's who makes up the New Jerusalem. And as we see in the text, the gates of the New Jerusalem are listed by the names of actual people. The actual tribes of Israel. They actually had a history. And then the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are the names of actual people as well. The twelve apostles of the Lamb. So their histories are woven into the very structure and the gates of the place. And without the history, it doesn't mean anything. Imagine, you know how it says Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Imagine total amnesia. 
No history trails with us. We're just all radiantly glorious beings. Hi, I'm Abraham. So what? <laughs> Sorry. I'm not saying that we'd say that, but I am yet another radiantly glorious being that you're going to eat with. Hi, radiantly glorious being. Doesn't matter what your name is. There's no history here. It makes no sense, friends. Abraham is Abraham because of the Abraham story. Isaac is Isaac because of his story. Jacob had his own story. And so on it goes. I'm not, I went off the text. That's very bad to do because I have a lot of things to cover. But these are real people who had real lives. Real things happened and God showed them real grace for their sins. And he used their gifts in a real way to build his kingdom. Think, for example, these massive pearls. I don't want to get into the pearls to any great degree this time. But from what I've learned about pearls, they come from the suffering of the oyster. They come from an irritation like a... Uh, grain of sand that gets in there and then the pearl builds up layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of protection and it's radiant and glorious and so there's a mingling of suffering and glory there there's just some stories to be told these massive pearls layer upon layer like the 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 rings of a tree and they represent stories of of brothers and sisters in Christ not just Jesus who suffered, but Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, O Colossians, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. There's more suffering to get the blood of Christ applied to each of them. We need those stories. And so each gate represents a massive amount of suffering, not just by Jesus, but by the people of God to build the place. And the architecture of the place is so often in scripture woven together with the people. 1 Peter 2 calls us living stones that were quarried to some degree out of every tribe, language, people, and nation. We make up the place. Living stones. Isaiah speaks of other structural members of the place. Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls. Listen to this. A memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. The eunuchs who worship Jesus. A memorial, a name, a history that will never end. And they're going to be part of the, of the walls of the place. Isaiah 60 verse 7 says, All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They'll be accepted as offerings on my altar. And I will adorn, I will adorn my glorious temple. Those are descendants of Ishmael. They're modern day Arabs. They're almost certainly all of them Muslims. Isaiah 60, verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. So again, the people are the adorning of the, of the structure. It's what makes it beautiful. Even in Revelation 3, verse 12, to him who overcomes, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I'll also write on him my new name. A pillar. So the people are the pillars. The people are the gates. The people are the foundations. The people are the walls. And the place is translucent. It's just radiantly glorious with the glory of God. There must be a history, a combination Now, in two weeks, we'll talk about the different colors. Every color of the spectrum is represented there. When we think about 1 Corinthians 3, gold, silver, costly stones, those are our rewards. They survive the fire of judgment, and they come and they adorn the place, and they shine with the glory of God. That's the first of 12 points. Get going, Pastor. I'm trying. All right, second one, the vast multitude, Revelation 7. You can turn there or just listen. 
Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's the redeemed from every tribe, language, people, and nation. There they are. A few verses later, though, it's really interesting. One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Do you not see how important that question is for my purpose here? I want to know their history. I want to know their stories. How did they get here? The elder asked John that question. John wisely punted, saying, Sir, you know. So why don't you tell me who they are? Well, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So woven into the answer of this great multitude, who are they? What are their names? What are their stories? Where do they come from? The answer is a sense of the suffering of this present world. The kinds of things that people endured. Heat and thirst and hunger and various forms of misery and deprivation. They'll never experience those again. But they are remembered. And they're part of the story of assembling this great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Thirdly, the bride has made herself beautiful for the wedding. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, beginning at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Very interesting statement. In other words, she got herself ready by doing righteous acts on earth. By doing the good works that God prepared in advance for her to walk in. And, and as she walked in those good works by the power of the Spirit, not for justification, not for the forgiveness of sins, not at all, but just in service to God, in service to the Savior, she got herself ready for the wedding day. And so a lot of her beauty and her radiance comes from her own actions while she was serving Christ on earth. Fourthly, at the end of John's gospel, you remember this? John has organized his gospel around seven miraculous signs. And seven extended teachings. It's it's very uh, different than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You remember in, in John 21, 25, the Apostle John says this. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So there's just not enough space. It's like the memory stick is too small. I mean, we would overwhelm, we would, we would have too much data if everything were written down. The very powerful and provocative statement, this present world isn't big enough for all the books that would be written. And if I can just pause and say, I don't think books are the best way anyway. 
I've been reading books my entire Christian life. I still read them. It's better to see it with your own eyes than read about it on the text. The scripture says that. 1 Corinthians 13 says that now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Someday faith, which is based on the word, will become sight, and that's better. That's why I'm advocating a visionary history, not just a book history. So he said, look, even if we wrote all the books, the whole world couldn't contain all the books. And so Jesus did a lot of other things, John's saying. Like what? Well, in in Matthew chapter 4, it says at the end of the chapter there, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them all. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I'm talking about thousands and tens of thousands of healings. John, in his gospel, devotes a whole chapter to just one healing, the man born blind. Remember that? Next week, on Easter Sunday, I'm going to focus on another chapter in which the entire chapter, for the most part, is devoted to the resurrection of Lazarus. So if we slowed down and told everyone's miracle story, every single thing Jesus did, the whole world couldn't tell all the stories. I'm interested in those stories, aren't you? I want to know about those stories. I want to know what happened. I want to know, I want to know what, what radio host Paul Harvey called the rest of the story. Do you ever listen to him? He was years ago. Maybe you need to be a little bit older. But back, this guy retired in 2008. And he used to tell these interesting stories from current events or from back in history. And he would unfold this thing and you didn't know what he was talking about. And then there would be like this mic drop moment at the end. And now you know the rest of the story. It's cool. You guys are looking at me blankly. I love this kind of thing. Tell me the interesting facts. Tell me the rest of the story. Like the Syrophoenician woman, remember with the, with the demon-possessed daughter? Remember Jesus is up there in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he doesn't answer her at all. She's like, Lord, son of David, have mercy. He's not even answering nothing. And then finally, I just picture her throwing herself in front of Jesus. He can't even take another step until he deals with her. So he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Woman, you have great faith. Your daughter's healed. And she went home, and the daughter was healed from that very hour. End of story? No. I want the rest. What happened then? Did they hug? Were there tears coming down their faces? Were they eventually part of the church their entire that Paul visited in the book of Acts? I'm interested in that woman. I'm interested in the rest of her story. I think you are too. You want to know what else happened? I want to know the, oh, the demoniac of the Gadarenes. Remember him? This guy's tearing off his clothes. He's breaking chains. Howling at the moon. He's got 5,000 demons inside him. Legion of demons. Jesus heals him with a word. The man wants to follow Jesus. Jesus said, no. Go back to your hometown and tell everyone in that region how good and kind God has been to you. I want to know the story of that man's life. How effective he was as an evangelist. I want to know the rest of the story. You know, at the beginning of the book of Acts, it says in Acts 1, 1 and 2, I love this. In my former book, the the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I love that word, began. 
We, we call it, the, the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. No, it's not. It's the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostles, and through the church. So Jesus has more actions to do, more works done by the Spirit through his people. Number five, and I showed you this last week, but it's so vital. Ephesians 2, 7. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were in Satan's dark kingdom. We could not break through. But God showed us mercy. He showed us mercy in sending Christ. He made us alive with Christ. And he raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show. Look at that word, show. The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Is that for just some of the saved? No, everybody. He wants to show the greatness of his grace in your life. And that's in the coming ages he's going to show it. We're not just going to read about it. We're going to see it. How gracious God was to save a sinner like you and me. Number six. Matthew 26, 13 speaks of a woman who anointed Jesus with very costly perfume. Remember the story and the smell, the aroma of the perfume filled the house. And Judas especially, but actually all the disciples, the apostles, were offended by how much money was just poured out on the ground. A year's wages poured out on the ground. And they were indignant with her, and they were indignant with Jesus for allowing it. And Jesus said, the woman is preparing me for my burial. But then he said something about her. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's incredibly powerful. So are we done talking about her once we get to heaven? Can we still keep talking about her when we get to heaven? I want to meet her. I want to meet her. I want to find out more about her life. I want those stories to be told. How about the widow that put in the two copper coins? She put in more than anyone else because all the rich people put in out of their abundance. She put in all that she had to live on. You know what that tells you? Much of history is made up by obscure people whose actions aren't noted by anybody. They weren't noted by anybody. The two copper coins, nobody knew what they did. Nobody ever saw them. They're never going to make the pages of history. But Jesus sees, and he says, that person that day served me better than anybody else. We would have no way of knowing if Jesus hadn't highlighted the poor widow and talked about it. Number seven. In the Psalms, there are many exhortations or promises that the righteous make to declare in the great assembly what God has done for them. This is a very common feature in the Psalms. So, for example, Psalm 22, which begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ends with a testimony of people from all over the world in the great assembly. Psalm 22, 25 through 29 says, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. So all of those that were resurrected up out of the dust will be assembled. And in the great assembly we will give our theme of praise to God for saving us. And in Psalm 22, it says, you have pierced my hands and my feet. It's all about the crucifixion of Jesus. So from the crucifixion of Jesus comes this multitude from all over the world who are going to assemble and say how great was God's mercy to save them. You get the same thing in Psalm 40. 
verse 9 and 10, there the psalmist says, I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. In other words, I'm going to get up and in front of this multitude, I'm going to tell my story of how good God was to me. Now, I know what you're thinking, or some of you. You're like, I don't like public speaking. You'll be so free of that by then. You'll be so free of that prideful self-concern that all you will care about is to tell God's story about your life, what God did in your life. Or Psalm 107, it tells the vignettes of four different people who are in dire need. There's, there is a group of people lost in the desert. They can't find their way out. There's someone who's sick and he's drawing near to the gates of death because of a, of a fatal illness. Oh, there's some others that were arrested for a crime and thrown in dungeons, thrown in prisons, and they're in chains. Or there's some others that are on the decks of a, the heaving decks of a ship in the midst of a terrible storm. All four cases, it says, let them cry out to the Lord and he will deliver them. And let them give thanks and praise to God in the great assembly. So Psalm 107 ends with these words. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and let them praise him in the council of the elders. Amen. So you're going to get a chance to get up and say, God has been good to me. He has saved me and relieved me and healed me. Number eight. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What does that mean? When do you get to do that? Do it now. Do it on Sunday mornings. But it's going to be even better in heaven. When you get to heaven and you are a priesthood, a royal priesthood, to declare the praises of the one who rescued you, that's going to be heavenly worship and heavenly praise. Number nine, Hebrews 11 is a great hall of faith. All these great stories of church history are told. All of these great men and women of faith and all the things that they did, remember? Talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, Sarah, these different stories. And then the author goes, gets to a certain point, and he's like, all right, I have a lot more to tell. <laughs> and this is what he says. He goes into summary mode. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured and refused to be uh, released so they might gain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went, around and went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute. They were afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering out in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So the author is saying, I have a lot more to say about these people. But time will fail me. We don't have enough time to go through the details. There's always, we're always on a timer. Always. There's not enough time to tell these stories. But in heaven, time will not fail us. We'll be able to tell these stories and they will be radiant and glorious. What about the genealogies? I don't want a show of hands, but for how many of you would you say 1 Chronicles is your favorite book in the Bible? I'm going to make you a promise. I will never preach an expository sermon series through 1 Chronicles verse by verse. That is not going to happen. 
what am I going to say about the sons of Dan or the sons of Naphtali? That hasn't been said already. I don't know anything about them. I know nothing about them. I don't know anything. My, my study Bible has a column of cross-references and there's nothing there. Because we don't know anything about these people. They're obscure, but they're in the Bible. And God is provocatively saying, even if you're obscure, like 99.99% of his people will be, I know you, I know your names, and I know your stories, and there'll come a time you'll be able to tell your stories. Or what about David's mighty men? You remember that listing of David's mighty men? And these people are famous in their era. And he gives you just a little snapshot of how mighty they were. Remember? Like this one, uh, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, he was a valiant fighter. And he performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. I want a replay of that. I want to watch that battle. Awesome. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. But that list in the Bible is provocative of saying there are lots of valiant acts. Some of them not so famous. Some of them are just humble cups of cold water given by a woman or a man to some servant to keep them going. In their act. They're never going to lose their reward and their stories are going to be told. Proverbs 31 speaks of the Proverbs 31 woman, a wife of noble character who can find. Her worth is far greater than rubies. And then it unfolds all of the, the, the valor and honor in being a godly wife and a godly mother. I can't tell you the number of funerals that I've done in which the family has said, this was a Proverbs 31 woman, and it was part of the funeral. They wanted me to honor. But I'm telling you, at a funeral, funerals are about 35 to 45, 50 minutes at the most. Just have a few minutes to eulogize and summarize the good works of a godly woman like that. But what's so incredible is how Proverbs ends. The last word on the godly wife, it says, give her the reward she has earned and let her works praise her at the gates. The gates were, the gates of the city of Jerusalem where official business was transacted. Earlier in Proverbs 31, it says her husband takes the seat of honor at the gates. So because of her work in his life, he's become prominent in the community. But now it's her turn to be recognized at the gates. So by far, the most important rewards we'll get are vertical. Rewards from God. That's infinitely more important than anything horizontal. But there's going to be a horizontal component to this godly wife and mother and all of the things that she did to keep her family clothed and well-fed and prayed for and all of that that nobody ever saw. And she'll get her chance to be rewarded and honored in heaven. And then finally, maybe most importantly, John 3, 20 and 21 the new Jerusalem is going to be translucent. It's going to be, this light is going to go right through her. The glory of God will go right through her. And all of these righteous acts that we've done that we're going to go back over, we're going to show them because they display the glory of God in our lives. And so it says in John three twenty, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So we come into the spotlight and we come into the, the time of focus. And we are able to take our works and put them on display so that God may be glorified through what we did. 
As Jesus said in another place, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So all of these good deeds and these works and this history, all of it is for the glory of God. So that's 12 indications that we're going to go back over the history in heaven. Now, we're going to meet some incredible heroes and heroines in heaven. And we're going to find some hidden moments in history that are going to be thrilling. We're going to get to know the great names, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, Adoniram and Nancy Judson, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. We're going to get to know them. They're our brothers and sisters. You're part, you're part of an incredible family, a royal lineage of men and women of God. And you're going to get to know them. But there, there'll be some obscure people as well. Wouldn't it be great to meet all of the martyrs involved in spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire before Constantine? Just to get to know these men and women who laid down their lives. Of them it was said, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. We're going to get to find out how they were willing to lay down their lives. Imagine meeting a Roman procurator who condemned a lot of our brothers and sisters, but who little by little was worked on by their testimony, and who himself crossed over and became a Christian and was himself condemned to death. We could meet a person like that. Or imagine a humble monk who's copying scripture in an Irish monastery when the Vikings showed up. And he's butchered. But one of the Vikings, part of that marauding band, himself later comes to Christ through testimony and witness. Imagine the the monk and the Viking sitting down at table in the kingdom of heaven and feasting. Or imagine... An unknown woman who cared for victims of the Black Death while they were dying in the 14th century in a city in Germany. And everybody else had run for their lives, those that were still able to run. But she didn't. She stayed there. And she's taking care of their loathsome clothing. And she's caring for them and giving them broth until she finally catches the disease and dies. Just getting to know who she is. Or how about a a prayer warrior, a, a, a woman in the 19th century who's not known by anybody except that she went in and closed the door and prayed to her father who's unseen and prayed for Hudson Taylor's mission in China that it would be successful. And God answered her prayers. But we don't know anything about her. And then getting to know Hudson Taylor and find out how he spread the gospel to the inland regions of China. No one's too great or too small to get to know in heaven. Recently, I read the account. This, is, this blew me away as a former missionary to Japan. This story is amazing. Some of you may have, are, are into war movies. Some of you aren't, I'm sure. But probably one of the best World War II uh, movie I've ever seen is Tora, Tora, Tora. And it's about the Pearl Harbor attack. It's done very well, very accurately researched, not sensational. Told from both sides of the, of the story, but a lot from the Japanese side. The, the words Torah, Torah, Torah were the code, code words spoken by the first wave of attack at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the word Torah means tiger in Japanese. And so it's basically saying the way is open. There are, no, there are no American planes over the harbor. The door's open for the attack. The pilot who gave that command later came to Christ. It's true. He later came to faith in Christ. It's incredible that he even survived the war. Japanese pilots did not survive that war. They were kamikazes by the end. They were just flying bomb-laden planes into American ships and troops and dying because they weren't well-trained as pilots. But this man was a national hero to the Japanese. Somehow survived the war. 
And after the war, he met his former flight engineer who he thought had died at the Battle of Midway, Kazuo Kanagasaki. He was overjoyed to see him alive. Turned out that man had been a prisoner in an American POW camp. So, Mitsuo Fuchida, this man that I didn't tell you his name, Fuchida asked him, he said, did they torture you? Did they abuse you? He said, no, they treated me very kindly. As a matter of fact, there was an American woman there named Peggy Covell who cared for us, cared for our needs. She nursed us when we were sick. She was just incredibly kind. Came to find out her parents were missionaries in the Philippines and they were killed by the Imperial Japanese Army when they invaded the Philippines. Well, this pilot, this Japanese pilot, Fuchida, is like, I can't believe that. How could that be? I mean, in, in Japanese culture, the murderers of your parents are your sworn enemies for life. You're going to get vengeance on them. You're not going to love them. Well, this man said, well, she said as part of her Christian religion that Jesus told us to love our enemies. So Fuchida was like, he, he had never heard anything and he was intrigued. A few weeks later, he was walking by a train station in downtown Tokyo in the Shibuya district. And he was about to enter the train station and someone was there passing out leaflets. And they were gospel tracts, and it was written by an American pilot named Jacob DeShazer, who had flown in the Doolittle raid that was the first bombing raid by American planes over Japan after Pearl Harbor, early 1942. They had to, like, strip down these long-range land-based bombers and somehow land, take them off off of an aircraft carrier, and they did not have enough gas to make it back. So they were hoping to crash land in China. Some of them did. Some crashed in ocean. He crashed on mainland Japan. And, was, and survived it, and was captured, tortured, thrown in prison, tortured for the rest of the war. But while this man, Jacob DeShazer, was in prison, he came to faith in Christ. That, that imprisonment was, it was essential to his salvation, and he's writing about the story. Now this man, Fuchida, is reading this, so he has got to find out more about Christianity. He tracks one of the missionaries down, gets a Bible, reads it, and comes to faith in Christ. Eventually becomes a traveling evangelist in Japan and in America. Wrote a book, you can get it on Amazon.com, From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. Now, I, I just, how many stories like that do you think there are? I mean, there's a multitude greater than anyone can count, and we're going to get to go over those stories. Now, I want to just free you from constraints that we're not freed from right now. I'm well aware that we're not now freed from them. All right. First of all, the biggest constraint will be in you. How much of this do you think you can take? It's like, we need a break, all right? We need to come to an end, etc. Well, I was thinking about the concept of boredom, all right? We have one of those vintage Webster dictionaries from the 1840s. And I looked up, and boredom isn't in the dictionary. I'm not joking. Bore meant you putting a hole in a board. So I guess the people of the 1830s in America didn't get bored. Or they didn't know what it was. Maybe they're fighting to survive and whatever. We, boredom's like a 20th century, like post-industrial revolution thing. I don't know. I want to do a, his, uh, like a history of boredom. And I'm trying to make my own advances in the science of boredom as well. Like how, to, how not to bore people. But, um, <laughs> but in heaven, I think boredom is a weakness of body and mind and heart. There's a weakness in boredom. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. They're as beautiful now as they will be three years from now. Their beauty doesn't diminish, but we get 
week as we consider it. So we will be transformed from that. Also, boredom, I think, is tied to selfishness and self-focus, self-love. Like, for example, if, if I told you that a, an area university had decided to honor you with its highest academic award, even though you don't go to that university, would you be interested in that story? Uh, I'd be intrigued. I would think they got the wrong person. I would think, oh, it's about time. They finally recognized me for my brilliance. At any rate, in any case, you'd be interested because it's about you. But if I tell you somebody you've never heard of and they're going to be honored, you would barely even raise an eyebrow because it's not you. It's a self-focus issue. In heaven, we'll be so completely free from that. We'll be God-focused. We'll be each other-focused and we'll want to hear each other's stories. Jonathan Edwards, in his classic uh, sermon on this, Heaven is a World of Love, he said, There is undoubtedly an inconceivably pure, sweet, and fervent love between the saints in glory. And that love is in proportion to the perfection and amiableness of the objects beloved. And therefore, it must necessarily cause delight in them when they see the happiness and glory of others. You'll be just so completely free from yourself. You'll be over yourself by them. And you'll want to hear somebody else's story. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one part is honored, the whole body is honored with it. We are going to share each other's honor. One last dimension of this, and then I'll be done. I think the Lord is also going to show not just what happened in the physical realm, but what he was doing in the spiritual realm to make it all happen. Do you remember the story of Elisha and the army of Arameans that came to capture him? And he goes out in that morning... And uh, the servant goes out, and he's terrified because he sees his vast army. And Elisha is like, I'm not too worried about it. Why? Because there's more on our side than there are on theirs. He's like, you're out of your mind. And then he prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes. And there were chariots and an army of fire, angelic army surrounding Elisha. Well, is it possible that there are moments like that throughout all of history in which God, Christ, by his sovereign power, pushed back the powers of darkness, pushed back the prince of the Persian kingdom, or pushed back this one and got this opening so that the missionaries could go, I want the whole story. I want to find out what God did in the spiritual realm as well as what we did in the physical realm. All right, so I'm out of time. Just by way of application, I would just say, yearn for heaven. Look forward to this this heavenly world that we're going to go into. You are going to a world of light and joy. Therefore, the journey along the way, it's been orchestrated, it's been ordained. It's a journey of suffering. Therefore, rejoice in hope in the midst of your suffering. Realize it's part of the tapestry of grace that God's weaving. Don't complain against him. Don't murmur against him. Don't think he's being hard with you. But bear patiently the cross of grief and pain as you add your story to the glorious story of heaven. And hate the very concept of wasting your life. Don't waste time. Let's add to the glorious story that we're going to see in heaven. Study church history. It's hard reading a book. But when you start finding out what these godly men and women have done, church history, especially good biographies, are incredibly encouraging to your faith. So read them. And share your faith. This is Easter week. This is a week that we get to come up to people and say... Let's talk about the resurrection. Invite people to church. We've got, everybody has a card in your, I mean, give that card to somebody that you believe to be a non-Christian. Just say, I, I would love you to come to church with me and hear about the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this, this morning, the most important thing you can do 
is not so much meditate on this incredible heavenly glory to which we're going, but have inside yourself a yearning to be there. Say, I want to be in heaven, but I understand I'm a sinner. The law stands against me. I violated my conscience. I have no hope of surviving judgment day. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a savior for sinners like you and me. All you need to do to know that you're going to go to heaven is trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now. Just repent of your sins, turn away from wickedness, turn to Christ and say, oh Lord, would you please save me from my sins and he will save you. And then your story as a redeemed Christian will start to unfold at that point. And what incredible works God has for you to do, only he knows. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the things we've been able to cover today. We thank you for the glory that there is in the word of God. We thank you, O Lord, for the indications we have in these various texts that heaven is going to be spent going back over, not just this, but at least in part going back over some of the glorious actions that you've done in redeeming such a vast multitude from everywhere in the world. And so, Lord, help us to be courageous in the meantime, to put sin to death by the Spirit, and to advance the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.